this is where if Radio Free Burrito had a presenting sponsor, I would say something like, the presenting sponsor of Radio Free Burrito is uh, a hat filled with snails. Put it on your head or don't. Why would you even wear this? Why is this a thing? Find out at a hatfullofsnails.com. Use offer code NERDIST for an extra side order of snails. But since we don't have a presenting sponsor, I will simply say it is Tuesday, June 13th, 2007, and this is Radio Free Burrito episode 49. Hipsters, flipsters, and finger-popping daddies, knock me your loads. Welcome to Radio Free Burrito. My name is Will Wheaton, and uh, those of you who are especially good at math and using the calendar are likely aware that there was no episode last week. Uh, congratulations. You are correct. There was no episode last week. I thought there would be one. I even recorded part of one, but uh, I was working on a audiobook or an audiobook all week long. And uh, when I would normally be recording Radio Free Burrito, my voice was like, yeah, so the thing about that is you need to save me for the uh, actual job that you're doing, not for the uh, thing you do for fun with fake presenting sponsors. So that's why there was no episode last week. Um, But somehow... I am confident that you found a way to soldier on. I have a big show for you this week. I've got a story to tell you about the history of my family uh, and my beloved Los Angeles Dodgers. I have some comments about the Stanley Cup final, which will be interesting and relevant to six and a half of you. Um, I thought I would tell you how my lovely wife Anne is doing as she recovers from emergency surgery. Um, And I am going to play you some dub reggae music, which I I hope that some of you have not experienced before uh, because it would make me happy to be able to have the knowledge in my head that I was the guy who introduced you to this fantastic genre of music. Uh, Quick commentary on this week's theme music, which I feel like I've used before. uh, Joe Jackson uh, from his album, I'm the Man. Uh, It's the first track off the record, and it's called uh, On, On Your Radio. Uh, yeah, on your radio. Um, if you are fans of uh, my dear friend Jonathan Colton, you may recognize the name Joe Jackson uh, from his song Kennesaw Mountain Landis because Joe Jackson, the singer, and Joe Jackson, the baseball player, have the same name. And uh, there's a great line in that song where uh, Colton says uh, uh, Joe Jackson became a pop star in the 80s and he asked the musical question, is she really going out with him? That's uh, that's Joe Jackson's big song. Um And then he says that Joe Jackson was kind of bummed out because critics often confused him with Elvis Costello, which is an odd thing because I don't think they sound alike 
at all. Um, I mean, like, I guess some of their musical sensibilities are the same. The the timing signatures that they use are sort of similar, and they tend to be in, in more or less the same key, but I think their voices are, are very different. But I asked Colton about that, and I was like, is that true? And he said, oh, yeah, he saw an interview or read an interview with Joe Jackson at some point in the late 80s, and he was, like, super bummed out uh, that he didn't achieve the level of uh, success that he probably would have uh, achieved had critics not confused him with Elvis Costello, which is kind of a giant bummer, right? Because like, um, as I live in the shadow of my extremely good friend, Chris Hardwick, um, I sort of know what it feels like to be someone who works really hard and is really good at a thing. Uh, and just, you just happen to be close friends with someone who is extremely good at the same thing. <laughs> and the world's like, well, there's only room for one of you. Um, so if you are interested in, uh, in, in 80s alternative music, uh, Joe Jackson's albums from from that period are extremely good, uh, especially uh, "I'm the Man." In fact, maybe I'll play you a song, an entire song from that from that record today. I don't know. I will make that decision as the show unfolds. Um, so uh, listen, um, I'm gonna play one of those funny things that I play, and then when I come back, I'm gonna tell you a story about me and my family and the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's Radio Free Burrito for the week of June 12th, I guess, or whenever you're listening to it. Uh, as I record this episode, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is uh, obstructing, uh, perjuring, and uh, 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 somehow getting away with not being held in contempt of Congress. So there, there's a current event for you. Uh, I'll be right back right after this. This is Linda Ronstadt. If you get high, be sure you don't die. Some drugs speed you up and some drugs slow you down, and booze makes it all the more dangerous. Watch out for the things that might wreck you or your pickup truck. Okay, so listen, all I can say about that, Linda Ronstadt, is uh, appreciate the message. Um, what about those of us who don't own pickup trucks? Do you just not care if uh, we uh, use drugs and crash? Is that what you're saying? That's sort of what I'm saying. I am Will Wheaton. That was my impression of a concern troll on the internet. Had it existed, when Linda Ronstadt recorded that public service announcement. That's another one of those things that I that I picked up from uh, WFMU's Beware of the Blog uh, 365 project. Uh, it's I cannot oversell what an incredible treasure trove of uh, audio oddities <laughs> that is. Um, so two weeks ago, I promised you that I would tell you the story of my family uh, and, and the Dodgers organization at Dodger Stadium. Now, I have to disclaim uh, this from the very beginning and make this extremely clear. Um, a lot of this is likely a combination of uh, family myth um, apocrypha that was handed down through generations and uh, <clears throat> and it may not be 100% historically accurate um, but I'm going to share with you the story as it has been told to me my entire life um, I presume that some of you out there are amateur historians I would freaking love it 
if any of you wanted to do any research on this and see what you can uncover on your own if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, and uh, when I referred directly to the historical record, I will be very clear about that. So um, let us begin. I am a third generation Southern California native, specifically native. I'm a, a second generation specifically native to the San Fernando Valley. Um, my, uh, my parents uh, are also uh, from, uh, from the San Fernando Valley. And um, my grandparents uh, are from uh, California. Uh, uh, now that I, now that I think of it, I don't know precisely where my paternal grandfather was from, but my paternal grandmother, uh, who figures prominently in this story, uh, was from Los Angeles. She is the daughter, uh, of two extremely prominent, very powerful and influential, uh, figures in the history of Los Angeles, uh, during the thirties, forties, and fifties. Um, my mother's family, as far as I can tell, uh, is, uh, it came from, uh, uh, Scotland, uh, and Ireland, uh, through the Caribbean. Um, and, uh, then, uh, my, my uh, my paternal grandmother was born in Panama because my my maternal great grandfather was uh, was working for the United States government um, when the Panama Canal was constructed. Uh, so my uh, my 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 grandmother uh, and if you've ever read my stories about my great aunt Val, um, they were born in Panama. And uh, then in the canal zone, so I guess they were technically U.S. citizens, uh, and then came up to the San Fernando Valley, uh, where I may have said this before, like I grew up in, a, in the valley at a time where like it literally was all farmland. So like, you know, those jokes of the, the people who are like, and if you stand on the corner here and look past that bank, everything on the other side was all orange groves. But it really was like that where I grew up. I grew up in the middle of farms. It was awesome. I really liked it um, until I was about five uh, when the development really, really started. My, my, uh, my, my mother's father uh, was from, uh, uh, his family came from Ireland. They were actors in Ireland at a time when uh, uh, actors, you know, there would be signs, right, that were like, basically were like, no criminals or actors. <laughs> like we were, we were all really looked at like they did not like us. Um, so I don't know where my maternal grandparents met, uh, but they, they were sort of like working class uh, uh, in, in the San Fernando Valley people. My, um, my paternal grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a performer. He was like a singer. Um, and I, I guess he like, he was, he was like a crooner, I guess. And he did a bunch of shows like in Vegas and then up in like Tahoe and Reno and stuff. Like that was kind of his deal. Uh, I was never especially close to my paternal grandparents. Um, uh, my paternal grandfather was like really stern and um, uh, I was really afraid of him. Uh, and my uh, paternal grandmother was just really a giant racist and it made me really uncomfortable to be around her. Um, she was wonderful to um, my brother. She was awful to my sister and me. And uh, to this day, I do not know why. But I mean, that's that's probably a little more personal than, than you need to know. Um, so let's uh, just sort of gloss over that. 
my great-grandparents were Mr. and Mrs. Harold C. Morton. Um, if, uh, if you are a student of the history of Los Angeles, those names probably made your ears perk up a little bit. I'm going to read for you the biography that I found online of my, uh, uh, my, my uh, paternal grandfather, um, a great-grandfather, okay? Harold C. Morton, member of the well-established law firm of Fredericks, Hannah, and Morton of Los Angeles, specializes in trial of oil litigation, having made a special study of that branch of the law. He is a native son of the state of California and was born in 1895 at Los Angeles. After completing his preparatory educational training in public grammar in high schools of that city, he entered the University of Southern California and engaged in the study of law. He graduated from this institution with a degree of LLB as a member of the class of 1916. Mr. Morton stood at the head of his class with a scholastic average of 97.2%, the highest record that has ever been attained in that institution. Um... I don't remember him very well because he died when I was young, but I recall him being like kind. Um, the the old my 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 aunts and uncles and and second cousins and stuff were like, oh no, he was terrifying, but <laughs> he was he was always pretty kind to me. Um, his uh, uh, his wife was Dorothy F. Smith. Uh, who uh, became Dorothy Morton. She was a city commissioner in, uh, in Los Angeles. Her obituary reads, in part, Dorothy Morton, art patron, horsewoman, and former city commissioner, died Wednesday night in her Hancock Park home. This is from 1992. Mrs. Morton, widow of Los Angeles attorney Harold C. Morton, who died in 1978, was 94. During the administration of Mayors Sam Yorty and Norris Polson, she was the only female member of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum Commission and the City Recreation and Parks Commission. She and her husband were among the Music Center's founders. Okay, I literally learned that five minutes ago. For some reason... That never once was brought up to me in my entire life. I cannot believe that. They were freaking founders of the Music Center. That is amazing. An avid horsewoman, she was one of the first women licensed as a racetrack trainer in the state in 1938. Her horses also completed, uh, competed on the show circuit. Um, uh, well, hold on. Her survivors include three daughters, a son, 17 grandchildren, and 23 great-grandchildren. Um, so this is what I've known about her, right? I knew that she was, uh, on, was, was part of the Recreation and Parks Commission. I didn't know she was on the Memorial Coliseum Commission. That's cool. Um, but I knew that she was one of the very first women to ever be licensed. Like, like one of the very first women in the state of California to be licensed to train horses for racing. And she was all into horse racing. She and my great grandfather owned tons of race horses. And when I was a little kid, I vaguely remember going to like Hollywood Park in Santa Anita for like some things where like they had horse races, horses racing or something like that. They had a horse called Deb Ricky that w named after my parents uh, that won uh, some big race somewhere. I think it may have been one of the stakes races at Santa Anita or something like that. Um, uh, but she was also um, 
And it's interesting to me that it's not in her in her obituary because maybe it's not accurate. But um, she went to USC also. The family story is that she went to USC and that she graduated from law school there also. Um, and it was kind of a big deal. Um, she was – I also remember her being extremely kind. Um, and uh, uh, my aunts and uncles are always like, oh, no, she was terrifying. Um, so it's really interesting, right? Like, I mean, you know, I knew her toward the end of her life when I was a tiny, tiny kid. So, like, obviously I wasn't around for, you know, the, the Mad Men era with her. Um, but she has always been presented to me. The memory of her has always been presented to me as, like, she was a badass. Like, she was, she was like, I'm not going to – skip doing this thing I want to do because I'm a woman and it's the 40s. Like, that she was just like, fuck you, I'm going to do my thing. Um, I don't know how much of that is true, but I want to believe that it is true. Um, uh, I know for sure that they were extremely powerful and influential people because the story goes that my great-grandfather was the kind of lawyer, once he entered into private practice, he was the kind of lawyer where, like, like, if you were all kinds of guilty you went to him and he found ways to like get you, you know, a plea bargain or work, you know, get people would like work shit out for you, but it was going to cost you a lot of money. Um, uh, so like, and I feel like there's incredible LA confidential style scandal, like lurking just beyond the surface, uh, of, uh, of, of, of all of my memories of them. But before my, my, I, I would ask my grandmother all the time cause I really wanted to know. And, uh, she just wouldn't say a thing. She was just like, she refused to talk about it. Um, uh, which made me even more curious, like, oh, there's gotta be something like awesome and scandalous in there somewhere. Like where are the bodies buried? Um, but, uh, but I never found out, uh, they never, she never, uh, never told me. Um, and, uh, uh, and whatever information there was, she, she died with it. Um, uh, sidebar, my friend, Chris, uh, it, it, like is an, it loves Los Angeles history and I can't remember how it came up but I just mentioned offhand that my grandfather was Harold Morton he was like holy shit Harold C. Morton of the law firm blah 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 and I was like yeah is that a big deal and he was like uh, a little bit so maybe that rings a bell for, uh, for some of you guys um, uh, so let's get to the part of the story that specifically is about Dodger Stadium I'm going to refer back to the historical record for a moment, um, as it uh, as it is re- recorded um, on uh, on Wikipedia. Okay, um, in uh, in the uh, 1950s, Walter O'Malley was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he wanted to build a stadium in Brooklyn that had a dome over it. Uh, but for one reason or another, that wasn't going to happen. So he was like, "Fuck you! I'm moving to Los Angeles." At the same time. He, I guess, I either he convinced the owner of the San Francisco of the of the New York Giants or uh, or Major League Baseball or something. But there was this idea, right? And the idea was like, well, we need to make this rivalry that exists between the New York between the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers. We need to keep that up, right? Because that's going to help baseball go west. Uh, and uh, that was how the Giants and uh, and the and the Dodgers ended up in uh in california at at around the same time and even though my friend hunter plays for the giants um as a lifelong dodger fan i just have to say fuck the giants uh it's the law i have to say it um even though i don't especially feel it that much it's a thing that i have to say um so o'malley wants to come out to california with the dodgers and uh a lot of people 
in Los Angeles. And, and this is, you know, this again is, uh, uh, here's the historical record, okay? The historical record is that there's this part of Elysian Park called Chavez Ravine. And it was at, at the time largely uh, uh, a Mexican American community, and it was sort of a uh, it was like a poor and working class uh, kind of area, and um, uh, it was uh, uh, there was a lot of public housing there, and uh, it was um, uh, uh, it was like a it was it was a you know an important part of of, of land, right? And O'Malley comes out to California, comes out to Los Angeles, and. Uh, he wants to build Dodger Stadium in like Elysian Park or Griffith Park or something like that. Now, this is I am back. To, I'm away from from historical record. Oh, Seamus is going to bark. I'm away. There he goes. Oh, listen to them. Wow. That sounds like the mailman must be here. I just read this thing that that the uh, that the dogs probably bark at the mailman because every day this dude like walks up to the house and then he leaves, right? And he never comes inside. So that the dogs are like, there's something not cool about this dude. This dude comes up every day and he never comes in the house. And that maybe the dogs are like, all right, I have protected you again from the mysterious dude that never comes into the house. Anyway, um, the uh, 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 I've, I'm veering off again from what I know to be historically accurate. And I'm just recounting stories that I've been told my whole life. Um, the, uh, the story goes that... Uh, there was this, uh, there was this this large contingent of um, pretty racist, uh, powerful people in Los Angeles who really wanted to get the Mexican American community out of Chavez Ravine because it was uh, it was a lot of land. It was just north of the downtown city area, um, and also it had these gorgeous views of all of the uh, the Los Angeles basin. Um, but there was there was no like legal way to like kind of force them out. And this is in the late forties and early fifties. So O'Malley comes out to California and is like, well, it sure would be neat to put a, a stadium around here. And the story in the family goes that there was a contingent of people in the city who wanted Dodger Stadium to be built in Griffith Park, where the old Los Angeles Zoo is. If you ever come to L.A. or if you live in L.A., it is really worth an afternoon, not when it's too hot, to drive out to Griffith Park, go down Riverside Drive, but go up by the carousel and go for a walk through the ruins of the original Los Angeles Zoo. Um, it's, you know, it reflects the time in which it was built. The enclosures are terrible. I'm sure the animals were miserable. Um, but it is, it is an amazing piece of architectural history. There's lots of plaques everywhere. If you saw the, the, the first Police Academy movie that had Bob Goldthwait in it um, is uh, uh, like the his weird gang lived. That was the set for it. Also, if you hike up a little bit further, you can get to Bronson Cave, which was the entrance to the Bat Cave in the 1960s series Batman. Um, and uh, and it's a, it's a really cool place. Now the Los Angeles Zoo is a little bit closer to Glendale, and it's a it's a much nicer zoo, and it's 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 really cool. Uh, but anyway, I've once again wandered afield from the original story. There was, according to family lore, 
there was this debate about whether Dodger Stadium would be put in Chavez Ravine, where it is now, or if it would be put in uh, Griffith Park, where the zoo is. And the, uh, the story goes that the, the Parks and Recreation Board was uh was really important was part of of the of this vote right like that that commission was going to decide where it went now reading my great-grandmother's obituary i wonder if the coliseum commission also had a vote on this and i do not know if she was on both commissions at the same time i'm just speculating right now um but so the dodgers had come to la and before dodger stadium was constructed they played in the los angeles memorial coliseum um which I've only been in once in my life for a Raiders football game in the 80s. Um, and all I remember about it is that it was really, it was a really big place. And um, I, it was imposing and cool, uh, even more so than the Rose Bowl was. Um, and uh, apparently that's where the Dodgers came when they first played games, which is weird thinking of, you know, because I've grown up watching baseball in like a stadium that's shaped like a baseball stadium, not a football stadium where they like put a baseball diamond in it. Um, my dad uh, grew up as a Dodger fan um, and uh, he went to the Coliseum the night Roy Campanella retired. And apparently they did like a candlelight vigil or something inside the Memorial Coliseum. There's pictures of it that are that are pretty incredible. Then he was like he was a little kid. He was like, you know, eight or nine years old and remembers that anyway. My father's family were not impartial arbiters of where Dodger Stadium was going to go. Like they were invested. They liked the Dodgers. They were Dodger fans. I think that's important. So this vote comes down. Where is Dodger Stadium going to be built? Is it going to be built in Chavez Ravine in Elysian Park? Or is it going to be built in Griffith Park in... I, I guess that's Los Angeles. It's like would be like Silver Lake adjacent right now, Atwater Village area. And the way the family story goes, my great grandmother ended up being the deciding vote on where the stadium would go. And the story goes that Walter O'Malley wanted it in Chavez Ravine. The story goes that a lot of very rich, very powerful, um, maybe super racist uh, uh, white people in Los Angeles and my great-grandparents absolutely rubbed elbows with this crowd, really wanted all of these Mexican-Americans who were largely poor out of Chavez Ravine. And they could use eminent domain uh, to kick them out. There are all these stories. There's a, there's a book. Let me see if I can find it real quick. There's a book that I recall looking on, uh, in one of the things that I looked at here, some, somebody said that it's a, a called the book of polemic, but it's like something quartz, um, uh, 
City of Quartz. So this is from Wikipedia. Los Angeles-based Mike Davis in his seminal work on the city, City of Quartz, describes the process of gradually convincing Chavez Ravine homeowners to sell. With nearly all of the original Spanish-speaking homeowners initially unwilling to sell, developers resorted to offering immediate cash payments distributed through their Spanish-speaking agents. Once the first sales had been completed, remaining homeowners were offered increasingly lesser amounts of money to create a community panic of not receiving fair compensation or of being left as one of the few holdouts. Many residents continued to hold out despite the pressure being placed upon them by developers, resulting in the Battle of Chavez Ravine, an unsuccessful 10-year struggle by the residents to maintain control of their property. There are lots of uh, uh, Wikipedia pages about this stuff, and there are really great documentaries that I've seen on public television that are all about this, because it is a significant event, especially as it relates to just the inherent racism of, of forcing these people out and uh, uh, things like government overreach with eminent domain and things like that. Um, so uh, the the story goes that the, my great-grandmother was the deciding vote. Where is, you know, where's the stadium going to go? And uh, the story goes that she cast the vote, which put it where it is in Chavez Ravine, which made um, the, uh, the sort of the ruling class of Los Angeles very happy, made Walter O'Malley very happy. And here's the thing that I've always thought was a little weird. For my entire life, uh, and for the majority of my, my father and aunt and uncle's lives, my great-grandmother owned season tickets three rows behind the Dodger dugout at Dodger Stadium and that they had had those seats forever. Now, depending on who you ask in the family, those season tickets like just showed up as like a thank you, wink, wink, for Dodger Stadium being where it is. According to others, they were just bought in a ticket lottery the way that ticket lotteries are bought. But they were in my family for as long as I can remember. My dad is in a weird place in the in the line of succession for uh, inheriting these seats. Um, and I think even though I'm the the eldest uh, of of that particular uh, branch of the family tree uh, after him, I think that I'm even further away because of the way it grows. Um, but my my grandmother's sister, got them when my great-grandmother died and gave them to someone in someone in her family, a son or a son-in-law or something like that. And anyway, they're gone now. Um, but for my entire life, uh, the, I, I guess like the, the sordidness and the questions around how that all that happened they were never really answered they were kind of hinted at and kind of winked at and uh my entire life i had a fucking front seat i had a front row seat better than the season tickets that may or may not have been a payoff to my great-grandmother to find out what happened and i freaking love history and i love the i love the like I love the underbelly history, you know, like one of the reasons I am so committed 
to like social justice and economic justice and equality and 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 the rule of law is studying history and seeing how fucking deals like this one fuck good people and people who aren't doing anything wrong right like and i never knew i never knew like all of this other stuff until just a few years ago like 5 or 10 years ago like how questionable the entire thing was um the upshot of it you know take the kind of the the uh uh the 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 murky and 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 uh i'm just i'm i'm i can't find the word you know i'm sure you're probably all yelling at your podcast players right now like the description the word you're looking for is and i it's unseemly it's seedy it's corrupt it's uh uh, that's but it's I can't I'm just I'm I'm missing the word um, I feel like that's that it's that moment in Throw Mom from the Train where Anne Ramsey's like sultry the night was sultry and Billy Crystal's like ah that's what I was looking for anyway um, uh, I I uh, I never knew about any of that and all the people who could answer the questions for me are, are dead um, so I'm I'm uh, I have access to the same level of of historical information as uh, as 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 anyone else can anyone else has. But if any of you are students of history, particularly Los Angeles history, and any of these names mean anything to you, and you know anything about it, um, I would love to hear if you care to share any research with me. Um, uh, and the upside of this. Right. Like the the good side of this. And this is where it shows where like people who are privileged are not aware of their privilege. I just took for granted that we had these amazing seats at Dodger Stadium my whole life. I never stopped to question, like, how did we get them? How, like, like, why do we, why can we sit so close to, to home plate? Like, why do I get to go to all these playoff games, right? Um, it just, it never even occurred to me once to ask. And, um, and my, my parents were like, never said anything about it. It was just like, this is what it is. And um, when my kids were small, uh, you know, we had access to uh, some, a few really cool things. Things by virtue of, of me being a guy who was occasionally on television. And I always made it really clear to Ryan and Nolan that this didn't mean that they were better than, than, than a person or that we were entitled to something. It meant that we were privileged and we were fortunate and that we should be grateful for it. And, um, you know, there were times where just as, a, as an odd example, which I don't know, may, may not cast us in a good light, we, you know, we were... We were uh, allowed to go to Walt Disney World after I did Flubber as a like as a thank you from the Walt Disney Company, and we could not afford to do anything, because um, even though I had worked on Flubber, like um, you know, I made I made a round scale for that movie, and um, Anne and I just we you know we didn't have any like disposable income at the time, and. Uh, Disney was like, you know, we'll we'll pay for you to go and do a whole week at Walt Disney World with your kids, and they gave us a guide. Um, and the thing was, when you have a fancy guide, you like get to go without waiting in lines and things like that. And generally, that's for like big, legitimate, real celebrities, or for just like super rich people who want to have a special appearance, you know, have a special like um, uh, experience. When I go to Disneyland with Hardwick and Lydia now, um, like they have to take a guide because Chris is super duper famous. And if we tried to go and just be like dudes going to Disneyland, like we did when we were in college, we wouldn't get anywhere because like he gets mobbed and like, I respect that. That's just a reality, you know? Um, but when the kids were little, I was like, look, you know, 
going to an amusement park and getting to like go to the front of the line is not normal. So we like just had the kids wait in line and, and appreciate um, when we didn't wait in line and things like that. Uh, I never had an experience like that as a kid. Um, and I don't think it's because my, I don't think that it was done deliberately to like make me feel like, you know, I was a big deal or anything like that. I think it was just a thing that my parents' generation didn't think about. Um, but, uh, the upside of this, as I said, is that I've gotten to go to Dodger games my entire life and I got to sit close my entire life. And, uh, I, I felt like I had a personal relationship with a lot of the Dodgers just because like we were always there. Um, even though I never, you know, I didn't really. And, um, I, uh, uh, I felt like Vin Scully's voice was always for real in Dodger stadium. I've probably told that story a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's an interesting story, isn't it? Um, uh, a really interesting history that my family has with that. And I'm positive there have got to be other things in there. Like there's just, I feel like there is a, there is a story in which like our side of the story, like the Morton side of the story, right? Like, like my grandmother was a Morton and she married a Wheaton. Um, and uh, we have a Morton, there's a Morton who's somewhere was a colonial in America and uh, is a is a signer on the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if that's actually true, but there is a Morton on the on the Declaration of Independence, and the story goes that you know we're related to that. So like there's, I was always around this thing in my in my my childhood of like you know you come from fancy stock or whatever. Um, there have just got to be bodies buried all over the place, and I'm so interested to know what what and where they are. Um, so that's the story of my, my family uh, with, uh, with the Dodgers and the Dodgers organization and, uh, and Elysian Park and all of that stuff. I hope it was worth the two-week wait to hear from it. Uh, here, listen to Jonathan Colton. He's going to sing you a song about Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and uh, then, uh, then I'm going to play you uh, some, uh, some dub reggae, and then I'll be back to talk at you a little bit more. It's Radio Free Burrito on a What's well, actually a really nice June day. I should probably be outside, but I'm not. I'm inside for you. You're welcome. Kennesaw Mountain Landis was a bad motherfucker. He was 17 feet tall. He had 150 wives. He didn't do that much except he saved the game of baseball. He put two and two together and he noticed it was four. Now the treachery of Shoeless Joe can't hurt us anymore. And he'll always be remembered as Kennesaw Mountain Landis. A fella named Joe Jackson was a fielder for the Black Sox. And he always wore his Black Sox, but he never wore no shoes. Weren't the nicest fella, and he had a couple problems. Cause he drank a lot and he beat his wife and he always acted rude. He killed and ate some babies and he copped an attitude. One man they hated most was Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Mafia said, Shoeless Joe, you should really run this show. You should be the guy who owns baseball. All you really gotta do is help us make a buck or two. We'll bet on the other team you lose the game, but make it seem like nothing. Further from the truth Shooters Joe did what they say Dropped a couple fly balls And he walked up to the pitcher And he poked him in the eye 
in the seventh inning With the Black Sox nearly beaten There was someone who was watching from his blimp above the stands Cradling a rifle in a stick and beating hands As if you hadn't guessed yet It was Kennesaw Mountain Landed Kennesaw said drop that glove For I swear by God above I'll make you regret playing baseball Shoes, Joe, looked up and saw Silver rifles gaping But he couldn't quite admit it So he raised his middle finger up above the other four Kennesaw took careful aim and fired a single bullet And he shot that dirty finger off and dropped his trusty gun And everybody in the stand knew that he had won And today they still refer to him as Kennesaw Mountain Landed And became a famous pop star And he asked the musical question Is she really going out with him? He had a couple albums And a comeback in the 80s But he never won a Grammy And he never was the same And he never could be satisfied With critical acclaim Cause the critics all confused him With the great Elvis Costello Yes, the critics all confused him With the great Elvis Costello catch yourself sliding in and out of a hallucinatory state after this is all over. If you do, just relax and enjoy it. It'll soon go away. But for now...
That is Dubbing with the Observer, uh, remixed by King Tubby and the Observer All-Stars. King Tubby is sort of the godfather of dub reggae, which is a subgenre of reggae music typically created by taking a lot of vocals out of a uh, a reggae track and then overdubbing, uh, enhancing the bass and and the drums section, adding a bunch of reverb and echo and things like that. King Tubby was born Osborne Ruddock in Kingston, Jamaica in 1941. He died in 1989. Uh, he is an absolutely amazing, amazing artist, and um, I, I, you know, like he's one of those sound engineers, like Alan Parsons, where uh, literally everyone who's ever listened to music has heard his work, but not everyone knows his name or understands fully his contributions to the music that we've all enjoyed for such a very long time. Um, That is taken from the Trojan Dub box set, which I feel like I picked up. I feel like I picked that up in England a hundred million years ago, but I'm relatively confident that you can find it uh, on, uh, on the Amazons or uh, in a record store near you. The original album uh, that that was off of is 1978's Dubbing with the Observer. Um, it's a pretty goddamn great, <laughs> pretty goddamn great record. Um, so uh, before that was Jonathan Colton's song Kennesaw Mountain Landis, based on a true story, actually, the story of Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who oversaw the, uh, uh, the, the like the um, inquiry into the Black Sox World Series scandal of the long, long ago. Uh, that's off his uh, 2002. 2002, 2003? What year is that? Let me see if I can find that. Are you guys as amazed at how, like, super professional I am as I am? Like, I think I'm pretty good. Uh, I want to say that's 2002. So I'm just going to say it's 2002. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's from a different year. But that's from his uh, record, Smoking Monkey, uh, which uh, has songs that that I wish Colton still played in concert, like I'm Having a Party uh, and uh, I Hate Christmas. Um, But it also has Ikea and First of May, Millionaire Girlfriend uh, on it. Um, There will be a link in the show notes to Jonathan's uh, website and uh, Jonathan's brand new album, brand new album, which is a concept album all about uh, uh, being on the internet and trolling and bullies. And Amy Mann is on it. And it is incredible. And Jonathan and Amy are actually on tour together right now. Um, If I remember, I'll put a link so you can find out some more things about that. In the last break, I uh, I mentioned the uh, the Bat Cave from uh, from Bronson Caves in, uh, in in Griffith Park, and it reminded me of a thing that I wanted to talk about on this show um, that was a little more timely a week ago, uh, but I feel no less strongly about it now than I did then, and that is uh, the passing of Adam West. Uh, who, uh, of course, played Batman in the 1960s television series and the 1966 Batman movie, which, for my money, is still the best of all the Batman movies. Uh, For me, it goes uh, Batman 66, Batman 1989, um, Batman Begins, and the rest of them are garbage. Um, But uh, I realize that is a controversial statement, so I'll just not expound on it. I wanted to tell you a story about the first time I met Adam West. Um, I... 
I was really, I was really lucky to work with him in a professional capacity a number of times. Um, uh, we crossed paths uh, when uh, I was working on Family Guy. Uh, of course, we are in the 200th episode of The Big Bang Theory together. Um, and uh, just being a couple of dudes who are uh, occasionally at pop culture and nerd conventions, our paths crossed in that way uh, several times. The first time I met uh, Adam, um, it would have been right around 2000, maybe Gosh, maybe 2001. Holy crap, you guys. I think it may even have been 98 or 99. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I was at a point in my career um, where it just felt like everything was over. I wasn't yet even 30 and I was struggling like crazy um, to get... uh, anything, auditions, work, anything at all. Um, and I was, you know, I, I had taken what, what I never made a lot of money from Star Trek. Everybody else did. I never did. I wasn't there when, when like the big paychecks happened. Um, and I wasn't there. Um, and, and when I was there, I was the kid. So I, you know, I was, I was paid less than everybody else just because of that. Um, But uh, I worked a lot, but I was not by any means rich. Um, And what I had, I had invested into a house. um, And, uh, uh, you know, there's just, anyway, there's other stuff. But I I didn't get to keep all the money that I earned. We'll leave it at that. Anyway, um, I, uh, I was really struggling. And... If you've read my book, Just a Geek, you you know that when I was young, I kind of felt like I don't want to be the guy that, that is going to conventions for work. Like, I just didn't want that to become my life. Um, uh, and I resisted it, you know? I felt like it was a, I felt like it was a safety net. I felt like it was a crutch. I felt like... I felt, I felt like it was it was uh, uh, Sally Field uh, in the mall with Whoopi Goldberg and Soap Dish. Like that's how I felt. It's not a it's it's not fair. I was I was really unfair to myself to feel that way. It wasn't accurate. Um, it's it's not the way that I was perceived, and and it is not it's not the way anyone was perceived. But you know, I was like what twenty three, twenty four, and uh, if you've read Just a Geek, you know that I really felt like I had a lot to prove to myself and to everyone else, and. I, I just didn't, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a going to conventions guy as my only like source of income and stuff. But Anne and I were, I, gosh, I feel like it's before we got married. So like we were planning a wedding and we were like, we were, you know, we just, I needed to, to earn, I needed to support my, my, my young growing family. So there was this autograph collector's show that was in Hollywood, um, and it was uh, it was pretty cool. Like, just objectively, it was cool. A lot of actors from the golden age of television, uh, a lot of actors from the golden age of film were at this show, and it kind of flew under the radar a little bit. It wasn't like a... Um, you know, it wasn't like a Wizard World or a uh, 
a C2E2 or anything of that magnitude. It was small. You know, it was a single ballroom in a hotel and there were maybe 80 people there. But like it was cool. It was a lot of really interesting, fun people. Um, and uh, I can't recall how I was invited to attend this thing, but uh, I said yes. Uh, and, and I went and I felt really bad about myself. I felt like, you know, it was a thing that I, I still struggle with this now, even though I am, I am by objective measurements, I am successful, uh, uh, in a lot of areas, but I still struggle with feeling like, you know, living in the shadow of stand by me and, and, and at that, not now, but at that time feeling like, um, uh, I was, <laughs> I was going to be known for the, for my life as the guy who quit Star Trek, right? Instead of like, you know, that just being part of my career. Thankfully, all that's changed. But at that time, my self-esteem felt really bad. I had not yet gotten treatment for my depression and anxiety. And, uh, and I just felt bad about myself. So I'm at this show and um, the promoter sits me at a table next to this woman called Julie McCullough. And... Uh, she was a playmate of the year, um, and I, I feel like maybe she was an actor, um, but she was such a nice person. She's, she was a little older than me. She was probably 10 years older than me. I'm just guessing. I don't know for sure. And she was so kind, and she could tell that I was struggling, and I was feeling bad about myself. And she and this other actor called Jewel Shepard both like really they were near me and they were just very kind to me. And they were like, kid, it's okay. Like, give yourself a break. Don't feel bad about things. This is cool. Um, uh, you know, everybody's doing what they have to do. Um, like, look over there, it's Adam West and Burt Ward and Julie Newmar. And I was like, what from Batman? And I lost it. I was so excited. And Family Guy was on too. So like I was way into Adam West as Mayor Adam West. Um, I especially love him as Mayor Adam Wee. So Julie was like, oh yeah, I've seen him at a, at a bunch of shows. He's the nicest person ever. Um, would you like to meet him? And I said, you know, I really do want to meet him, but I don't think I'm going to. And she said, why? And I said, because I'm just afraid, man. Like I... I can't overstate how much I love Batman and what a big part of my life it is. And if I go and meet him and he's not cool to me, it's going to ruin Batman for me. Like William Shatner already tried to ruin Star Trek for me. Rutger Hauer ruined everything Rutger Hauer was ever in for me. Like, I don't, I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to be taken away from me. I don't want to take the risk. And she was like, I promise you, if you meet him, he's going to be cool. And I said, you know, I just, I don't know. I can't take the chance. And, and besides, I don't want to bother him. And she was like, okay. And the day went on. And, uh, you know, we, I, I signed pictures for people. And, and uh, uh, you know, it was just kind of like, it was very low key. It wasn't like there was no photo ops. There was no cosplay. It was really like hardcore, serious collectors who wanted these things, you know. So the day is wrapping up. And, uh, I'm like putting my stuff away and I look up cause you know, you feel a person near you. I look up and, oh my God, it's Adam West. And I'm like, uh, and he says, hi, um, I really wanted to introduce myself to you. I'm Adam West. And, and I was like, um, uh, 
uh, hi, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Will. And he says, oh, I know. Uh, I really love your work. And this is probably going to sound silly, but I've been like across the room from you all day long. And I just, I really wanted to meet you uh, because I really enjoy your work and your work has meant a lot to me. But I was worried that if I came and introduced myself to you, and you were a jerk to me, it was going to ruin Stand By Me, and it was going to ruin Star Trek, and I didn't want to take that risk. And I realize that what has happened, and he's saying all of this with genuine kindness. He's not making fun of me. I realize that Julie has gone to him when I'm not aware of it and told him all these things about me. And he just made the choice to come over to me and just be kind and use humor and just be disarming and and just be nice to me when he had no reason to. Like, I was nobody. I was... I was mid-twenties former child actor who couldn't get a fucking audition for anything. I was... There was no percentage for him in being in doing that other than it was a kind thing to do and he knew it and he made the effort to be kind to me. And it made my day. It made my, it made my life, man. And I thanked him and I shook his hand and he was so, so friendly. And I know we talked a little bit and I don't even remember what we talked about after that because it was just, he was, I was just so in awe of, of that happening. And there was nothing arrogant about him. There was nothing... There was no sense of like impatience or anything in him. He was just a nice, kind, generous, gentle human being. And I, you know, I took home, I don't know, a few hundred dollars that day from work and it was enough. It made a difference. But like what, what I took home from that that I will remember the most and that I still remember, like, what now, almost 20 years later, is how kind Adam West was to me. And when I heard that he had died, the first thing I thought was, I'm never going to get to sit down and talk with him again. Because when he worked on Big Bang Theory, and I worked on Big Bang Theory, there's a picture on my Instagram that John Ross Bowie took of John and Adam and me sitting on the couch uh, in the apartment set and in between takes of that that scene we just sat there on the couch and he just told us stories you know about being Adam West he asked me for advice about comedy he asked me for advice about what that set was like because he knew I had worked on the show a lot and he knew that like in that moment I was the veteran of that stage and he was the new guy and like, wow. 
in my way, in, in, a, in a small way that he probably didn't know and, and, and I didn't comment on, I got to like pay back a little bit the kindness that he gave to me so many years earlier. And I hope that whenever, whatever my time, uh, you know, in the simulation is over, I hope that there will be someone who remembers me the way I remember him. And maybe somebody listening to this will be inspired to, to do that. Be someone who will be remembered the way I remember Adam West. Nuggets. It's a uh, 60s garage and psychedelic uh, music uh, from Latin America. And that is an act uh, called Los Mustangs uh, with La Carta, which is the uh, Spanish version of the box top 60s hit The Letter. Uh, remains one of my favorite uh, songs of that era. So, everyone, we've been together for a bit over an hour today, and I think I've taken up enough of your time. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much for listening to Radio Free Burrito. Uh, please like and subscribe and uh, rate and review and share and all of those things. Um, I am relying on, on you in the audience to let other people who may be in the potential audience know that the show exists as I gear up for a potential uh, real live radio show later in the year uh, that will live somewhere in the world. That's I've probably said too, I've said too much. 
Um, uh, it just leaves me to uh, say thank you uh, to all of the artists for uh, making this great music that I love. Thank you to uh, Adam West for being unbelievably kind to me. And uh, a thank you in advance to any of you amateur historians or professional historians who care to share with me uh, any uh, research you were able to uncover uh, about the mysterious and hopefully sordid history of, uh, of my, uh, my, my far removed family tree. This weekend, everyone, uh, I will be in uh, Washington, D.C. for AwesomeCon. Uh, I will be there Saturday and Sunday. So uh, uh, if you're in the area and you want to come out and see me and Felicia Day, the entire cast of the Guild is going to be there and a bunch of really fun, interesting people, uh, head on out to AwesomeCon to uh, check it out. And uh, that is just about all I have to tell you for this week. So thanks very, very much for listening. And uh, until next time, I have been Will Wheaton. To the best of my knowledge, you have been and continue to be exactly who you are. And uh, I will see you next time right here on Radio Free Burrito. Bye. Radio Free Burrito is presented under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org. Radio Free Burrito lives on the internet at radiofreeburrito.com, where you can find show notes, links, pretty pictures, and a lively discussion about the nature of owls, if you choose to have it. And now, a random fact. HMS H-28 was a British H-class submarine built by Vickers Limited, Barrow in Furness, as part of the Batch 3H-class submarines. She was laid down on 18 March 1917 and was commissioned on 29 June 1918. HMS H-28 collided with a steamer in the Bruges Canal in May 1929. H-28 was scrapped on 18 August 1944 and was broken up in Troon.